0: Well, good morning, Rivertown Community Church. I want to welcome all of our campuses with us this morning as we are starting a brand new series today entitled Breakthrough. And so if this is your first time with us on any of our campuses, I just want to say welcome because this is a great day for you to be here because we're kicking off a four-week series. And here's why I'm so excited about this series Back at Easter, we asked every one of you on all of our campuses to give us like the top topics that you are wrestling with and that you're struggling with so that we would know how to communicate God's word better, more practical, impactful for your life. And on every one of our campuses, the top, in, in the top five was how to deal with difficult situations, how to deal with difficulties and problems in my life. On every one of our campuses, that was in the top five. And so today we're starting a brand new series entitled Breakthrough, When Your Dreams Don't Come True. And it's a series all about how to deal with difficulties, how to deal with life when it doesn't work really well for you. Now, I'm even more excited about it because I have a friend by the name of Matt Johnson that is from Kentucky, and Matt is an amazing content creator, and he's also an amazing communicator, and he's an amazing leader of a church called Journey Church in Callaway, Kentucky. And so on all of our campuses, because he's going to kick off this series for us, all of our campuses, will you give it up for Matt Johnson as he comes to speak and share with us today? Matt, come on up here, buddy. Yeah. Good see you, man. It's going to be good, buddy. Appreciate it. Good morning, RCC. How we doing?
1: great to have you here. I, I am so honored. I'm so thrilled to be here uh, for a couple of reasons. One, I want to tell you after that, um, I'm just going to take Paul back with me and let him introduce me at Journey next week and see what they would just all laugh when they heard that introduction. Um, no, I'm thrilled to be here for a couple of reasons. I'm so appreciative for Paul, uh, to Paul for the invitation uh, because... About two years ago, Paul and I met, maybe 18 months ago, we met at a lead pastor retreat in Atlanta, and we were sitting at the same table together, and I began to ask him questions about RCC and figured out you know, what was going on here, and, and we come from similar settings in terms of smaller communities and, and things of that nature, and realized there's a lot in common between where we've got our church and, and where RCC is. Uh, but Paul is an incredible leader, and there's so much we have been learning over the last couple years from you guys. And so I just wanted to pause and say... Thank you, thank you, thank you for what you are doing here. You have no idea the impact it's having, not just in your communities. You have no idea the impact that it's having with other churches. And our church is one of them. We're watching what you're doing, and we're stealing all the good stuff and the bad stuff. We're like, that's the dumbest idea ever. We're not doing that. I mean, it's, it's awesome. So we're, we, we are better as a church because of you. So for all of you who serve at any of your campuses, for all of you who sacrificially give, for all of you who have served and given over the years, I know you see the impact in your communities. I just want you to know it goes way, way, way beyond that. And so on behalf of all of us at Journey, thank you so much. Thank you so much for what you're doing. So I grew up in Western Kentucky. You can tell by the accent, right? I grew up in Western Kentucky, spent pretty much my entire life there. Um, and uh, For the majority of my life now, I've been in Murray. Murray's a small town of about 18,000 people. I graduated from Murray State University. It's right there. It's It's a small rural farming area, but then there's a university right there in the middle of it. So I graduated from Murray State, and then back in 2005... Uh, I was very blessed to be a part of a group of seven people who started Journey Church on the campus of Murray State University. And now, 12 and a half years later, we still meet on the campus. We meet in the basketball arena there, so we're still portable. So when Paul called and said, do you want to come down here and speak... I thought, wait a minute, wait a minute. I can speak, and then I don't have to tear it all down and put it in a box truck afterwards. Sign me up for two weeks, buddy. I am. I'll be here as long as you want, you know. So, so I am really, really excited to be here. I want to introduce you real quickly or show you uh, my family because they've gotten to come down here to Florida with us. Uh, so I'll show you a quick picture of them. This is my wife, Jen. Jen and I have been married for 11 years. We celebrate our anniversary on May the 25th. And then these are our two kids. This is Ellie. She just turned six years old in April and finished up kindergarten. Some of you remember that. Some of you probably have kids in that stage. And then this is James. James is going to be five, two weeks from today. So you can imagine the countdown going on in our house, you know? These two are 14 months apart, 14 months apart. So it's been really calm and peaceful around our house the last five years or so, you know? But but they're awesome. Uh, they are awesome kids, and, and I feel so blessed uh, to have the family that I have, to be a part of the family I have. And I, I'm like you in a lot of ways. You know, you start thinking back on your life, and you realize, wait a minute, I really am blessed. I'm, I'm blessed to have seen that dream come true, and that dream come true, and that dream come true. But at the same time, if we were honest, and if we could go sit down and you know have lunch together afterwards, and you just opened up and shared with me and I shared with you... We've got a lot more in common than we have differences, even though we come from different places, even though um, we may believe differently, some of you may be Christians, some of you may not consider yourself Christians, some of you follow Jesus, some of you aren't sure what you think about any of that. But no matter where you are in the spectrum, there's a lot that we have in common. And one of the things that we have in common is in spite of the fact that we've all been blessed in some significant ways, we also all know the pain and the discouragement and the despair that comes from feeling like your dreams don't come true. You've gone through moments, you've gone through days, some of you have gone through entire seasons and stages of your life where you've had dreams die, where your dreams have just crumbled and you didn't know what to do and you didn't know how to respond and you didn't know where to turn and you weren't sure what your life was going to become or where to go next. You just knew everything that I've dreamt about and assumed would happen in my life. Now I've got to come to the realization it's not going to happen. And so today and over the next four weeks, as we go through this breakthrough series, we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about what to do with that. And today, I just want to start a conversation for us around this simple question. What do you do when your dreams don't come true? What do you do? Sometimes your dreams don't come true because of your own choices, right? We've all been there. You made a decision, you made a choice that killed a dream you had. Sometimes they don't come true and they're because of the choices of other people. Sometimes they don't come true and... It's just because of life. But it really doesn't matter. It hurts no matter what. So what do you do when your dreams don't come true? What do you do when it dawns on you? I don't think that's ever going to happen, or I am now certain that is never going to happen. How do you respond to that? For some of you, it was a dream to be the very first person in your family to get a college degree. But you're at a point in your life, because of some things that have happened, where you're beginning to realize, I don't think that's going to happen. For some of you, it was a dream to get into a certain college, to get into a certain program. And you're thinking, it's not going to take place. For some of you, it was a career thing. Like, you you had a dream of a certain career you were going to be a part of, and you'd always assumed you would just be doing that for a living. And now, here you are, and you're doing something you never expected to be doing, and every time you try to get into that career, another door closes, another door closes, another door closes. Or maybe you had the opposite. Maybe you were able to chase that career. Maybe you started that business. Maybe you started doing that thing, and then it failed. And It, it feels like you failed, doesn't it? That's how it feels to you. And so you're going, I don't even know what to do now because I assumed I would do this for the rest of my life. For some of you, it's the dream to have biological children, and you've come to the point, you tried everything you know to try, and then the doctor looked at you and said, it's just not going to happen. Or it was a dream to adopt, and now it seems like the door's closing. You're not going to be able to adopt. For some of you, you had a child that you lost. And you never saw that in your future. So how do you deal with that? How are you supposed to navigate your way through that kind of grief? How's life ever supposed to move on from that? For some of you, you're single, and you assumed at this stage of your life you would be married. And there's no prospect of that. And for you, you just, you're thinking, well, I don't, I don't even know where to go from here because I never dreamt I would be here. For some of you, ironically enough, it's the opposite. You're married, and your marriage is nothing like what you dreamt it would be. Matter of fact, if you were really honest with yourself, you would admit if there were a way for you to go back, you might never marry him, you might never marry her to begin with because of what you know now. But you are where you are. You have the marriage you have, and now what do you do with that? How are you supposed to resurrect that dream? It just feels like to you that marriage is never going to be what you hoped it would be. I don't know what your deal is. I just know this. All of us experience broken dreams at different points in our lives, don't we? And the reality is this. this, This is so important. The reality is your response in the middle of a broken dream often becomes a defining moment in your life. This is what I've seen not just from my own life but from all the stories of people I hear over the years. When you're in the middle of a broken dream, how you choose to respond, it doesn't feel this way in the moment, but it ends up becoming a defining moment for you. When you look back, you realize, oh my gosh, yeah. There's so much that hung in the balance of how I responded in that moment. And the reason that's true is simply because of this. Because broken dreams can quickly derail things, can't they? We've all watched this happen in our own lives and in other people's lives. Broken dreams can derail our confidence in ourselves. For some of you, you got in the middle of your broken dream and you began to think... Well, maybe this happened because I'm not good enough. Maybe this happened because I did that and I didn't do that. Maybe I'm just not cut out for it. You began to lose confidence in yourself. Broken dreams can derail our relationships. Have you noticed that happening in people's lives? Because when you go in the, into a broken dream and you begin to navigate your way through that, there are all these emotions you have to process. There's anger. There's bitterness. There's resentment. There's grief. There's pain. There's envy. There's jealousy. And we all fool ourselves into thinking the same thing. We all think, oh, I I can contain those emotions inside of me and nobody else will ever see them. That's not true. Those emotions seep out into all those relationships and oftentimes it will derail the relationships with the people we care about and love the most simply because we didn't know how to process and navigate through a broken dream. We didn't know how to have a breakthrough. Most importantly, broken dreams derail your confidence in God, don't they? Can we just be honest about that? If you're not a follower of Jesus, you're going, well, yeah, that's part of the reason I don't follow because I just can't understand why God would let that happen. Well, for those of us who follow Jesus, we don't understand why God lets it happen either. We all find ourselves in the middle of a broken dream thinking, if not saying, well, God, if you wanted to, you could have. It's true, isn't it? God, if, if you wanted... You, you could have made sure we had kids. You could have made sure I kept that job. You could have opened the door for that career. You could have given me a better marriage than what I've got right now. God, if you, you could have fixed that financial situation. God, you're powerful enough. If you wanted to, you could. So why in the world would you do that? Broken dreams derail our confidence in God. I'm telling you, if you don't learn how to have a breakthrough and navigate through those moments, through those difficulties, through that discouragement and despair... You're going to end up having a defining moment that's negative in your life. So all we want to do today and over the next few weeks is start a conversation around this. What would it look like? In the middle of your difficulty, in the middle of your pain, in the middle of your broken dream, what would it look like for you to have a breakthrough? What would it look like for you to break through all that discouragement, all that disappointment, and come out on the other side better than you are right now? Well, that's possible. And when you begin to read the scriptures, I don't think there's a better example of a person who shows us how to do that than King David. Now, we hear David, and you think, are you kidding me? What broken dreams did he have? I mean, he was king. Everybody still talks about him today. But when you begin to read David's life, you realize it was a series of broken dreams, and it started really early. So David grows up in this little town called Bethlehem, really small town. His dad was Jesse. David was the youngest of eight brothers. Can you imagine the youngest of eight brothers. You can kind of envision how David was treated and viewed in the family, right? The youngest of eight. And so as he's growing up and gets a little older, they kind of look at him and dismiss him as, oh, that's just David, that's just David, that's just David. So they eventually decide, here's what we're going to do with David. We're going to send him out to watch dad's sheep. That's pretty much the best place for him. Just put him out there. And so they do. They send him away. And so David becomes a shepherd. And then when he's 15 years old, something interesting happens. It becomes a defining moment for David. This famous prophet in Israel named Samuel shows up in Bethlehem, and prophets just didn't show up in these little towns for no reason. So there is a buzz through the community, and everybody honestly is scared to death because if a prophet's showing up, we must have done something wrong, you know. So they're like, "Oh my goodness, what are, what's this going to be about? And what have we done?" And Samuel makes his way to Jesse's home, and he goes in. This is this is so typical. It's kind of embarrassing when you think about it. So he, Samuel goes in. He looks at Jesse, and he says, "I'm here." because God told me one of your sons is going to be the next king. I'm here to anoint them king. Jesse says, okay, let me get my sons. And he brings seven of his sons and lines them up in front of Samuel. Doesn't even think about grabbing David. That tells you all you need to know, right? Some of you are youngest kids and you're like, yep, that sounds about right. All seven of them just leaves David out in the field. And so Samuel... Starts going down the line. God is at that one. God is at that one. God is at that one. No, 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 no. All seven of them, he gets a no. And finally, kind of embarrassed, Samuel says, Jesse, I hate to ask this, but do you have any other sons? And Jesse goes, oh, well, yeah, there is one, but no, he's not king material. No, no, no. Samuel's like, yeah, bring him in here. And sure enough, God says, that's a one. It's David. And Samuel says, you're going to be the next king, and he anoints him. There are only a couple problems with that. One of the problems was, There was a current king in Israel. His name was Saul. And that king had an heir to his throne, his son, Jonathan. And back in those days, it was not good for your health to be named the future king when there was a current king in power. That was called a threat. You didn't want to do that. That's a Game of Thrones you did not want to play. So nobody really wanted to let this out. And besides, if you read the story, you discover that David's family is looking at Samuel like, are you kidding me? Like, David's the guy? David's not the guy. David's not king material. What do you think Samuel's thinking? He had a little too much to drink last night, I believe, because there's no way, no way, no way. So Samuel leaves. Guess what David's family does? David, you got to get back out to the sheep. And they went on like nothing happened. Some time passes. And then something interesting takes place. I mean, David, can you imagine he's out in the pasture thinking... Is this really going to happen? Am I going to be king one day? I mean, suddenly he has a dream in his heart. It's not even his own dream, it's a dream from God, so you got to feel pretty confident that's going to come true. But I'm sitting out here with a bunch of sheep. Until David gets an invitation to be hired to play the harp in the palace for Saul. Who knew shepherds could shred a harp? David could, apparently. So they bring him in, right? They bring him in and he starts playing in the palace. Now, again, I'm just reading between the lines here. I don't think this got David's hopes up too much, but it's a step, isn't it? It's kind of like being janitor in the White House. You're a long way from the presidency, but you're in the house. So take that, you know? David's a long way from being king, but he's in the palace. So he's playing the heart for Saul, and he's seeing how everything's going on. He's getting to know these people in power in Israel. And then the moment that we all are familiar with about David happens. The Philistines come. They attack Israel, and... The army's on one side of the Valley of Elah, and the Israelite army's on the other, and this giant warrior named Goliath comes down in the Valley of Elah every single day, and he taunts the Israelites, and he taunts God, and he says, just come down. Somebody come down and fight me. If you beat me, then we'll surrender to you, and everybody's too scared to fight him. Meanwhile, David's back watching sheep. He's not even allowed to be in the army, but Jesse wants to know how his brothers are doing. All his brothers are in the army, and so Jesse grabs some food, gives it to David, and says, Hey, would you go deliver this to your brothers and check on them and see how they are? Basically, Jesse said, David, I need a pizza delivery guy. You're my man. Not king material, but you'll be great delivering pizza. So he sends him. David gets there. He gives the food to his brothers. He sees Goliath down there taunting God, and he's like, No, no, I'm not putting up with that. And he grabs a sling and grabs some stones and he starts marching down there. Meanwhile, everybody in the army is going, Well, isn't that your brother? Yeah, yeah, that's my brother. What's he doing? I don't know, but tell him goodbye because it's the last time we're going to talk to him, you know? Saul's going, isn't that the guy who plays harp? Like, he's not a warrior. He's a harpist, you know? David goes down there, and he grabs a stone, and he flings it. And everybody thinks his days are over, but he hits Goliath right in the forehead. It knocks him out. He walks over. He grabs that sword out of the sheath that Goliath had. He cuts Goliath's head off with his own sword, and he holds it up and says, take that. These are the kind of stories you read your four-year-old son, by the way, in case you want to know. They love it. They love it. So anyway, the minute David's doing this, he's going, look here, look here, and then all the Philistines are scared and the Israelites gain courage and they rout the Philistines. It's a huge deal. It's a huge, miraculous victory for Israel. So they're marching back into the town now as a victorious army. And there are these ladies lining in the streets, both sides of the streets. And they're singing a song, and one of the lyrics in the song starts out with, Saul has slain his thousands. You know, that made Saul feel good. You better believe I have, you know. But that wasn't the end of the lyric. They kept singing, and they said, and David has slain his tens of thousands. And David goes, are you kidding me? I just became a lyric in a Taylor Swift song. This is unbelievable. I might make it after all. Matter of fact, he gets so popular in Israel that Saul ends up letting him marry his daughter, Michael. Now David is the son-in-law to the king. Now he's living in the palace. And don't you know now David's going, this dream God gave me? doesn't matter what my brothers thought. doesn't matter what my dad thought. This dream is going to come true. Look at all these doors God is opening along the way. Now I can see how it will happen. Saul will die, and then his son Jonathan will become king, and then he'll die, and then I'll become king. You ever had one of those moments where it felt like God was opening all the doors to your dreams? And then completely out of the blue, they slammed shut, and the dream was killed. It's so painful, isn't it? Well, that's exactly what's happened to David just when he thinks the dream's going to come true. You remember that little song, Saul slain his thousands and David is tens of thousands? See, it actually never turns out well for people when they're a lyric in a Taylor Swift song. Have you noticed that? It created a lot of jealousy in Saul's heart. And he ends up making attempts to kill David. You thought you had a bad father-in-law. You hadn't gotten that bad yet. So he keeps trying to kill David to the point that David realizes, i got to run for my life. And he sneaks out in the middle of the night. And he flees, and his goal is to get to another country, to get out of Israel entirely. But on the way, he stops at this little town called Nob, N-O-B, Nob. And this is where the priests that served in the tabernacle lived. Now, if you grew up Catholic, they weren't priests like you're familiar with. They had wives and they had families. And they all lived, there were 85 of them altogether, they all lived right here in this little town called Nob. So David stops there. And he begins to make some responses, some choices, some decisions in the middle of his broken dream that created consequences and regret for him for the rest of his life. This is what I love about this story. He doesn't get it right. You don't either, do you? Neither do I. But there are a lot of valuable lessons we can learn from David's mistakes. So I just want to jump right into the middle of the story there. And we'll unpack a simple truth from it that you need to remember and I need to remember when we're in the middle of a broken dream. Here's how the story goes. First Samuel 21 says, David went to Nob to Ahimelech the priest. Ahimelech was the priest over all the priests. And Ahimelech trembled when he met him and he asked, well, why are you alone? Why, why is no one with you? This is how big of a deal David was. David was basically the general of the army at the time. So you never saw David by himself. He wouldn't go anywhere alone. This would be like, you can kind of understand this if you imagine that this afternoon you get a knock on your door and you open it up and it's the president of the United States. Only difference is there are no black SUVs. There are no guys with earpieces and menacing looks on their faces standing around him. Like it's secret service is nowhere to be found. It literally is just the president at your door. You would immediately think, "Uh uh-oh, we're all in trouble. What's he doing here by himself? Well, that's exactly how Ahimelech felt. That's why he was scared to death. He's thinking, what could have possibly gone wrong in the palace for David to be here all alone? Well, David, he hasn't thought that far. He's just running because he's scared out of his mind. And now he realizes, oh my goodness, I've got to figure out how to come up with a story to convince Ahimelech that I'm not running from Saul. I've got to figure out how to do this or I'm going to die right here. So here's how he responds. David answered Ahimelech the priest. Well, well, here's why I'm here by myself. The king sent me on a mission, and he said to me, no one is to know anything about the mission I'm sending you on. Ahimelech, it's a really secret mission. Shh, you know, don't tell anybody. Don't tell anybody. Well, yeah, but why don't you have anybody with you, David? Oh, yeah, oh, yeah, i got to come up with a reason for that. So he goes on. He says this, as for my men, yeah, oh, i got men. Don't worry, Ahimelech, i got men. It's for my men. I've told them to meet me. Well, where have you told them to meet me? Meet you, David. David. Um, You know, at that that certain place. You know what I'm talking about. He's a terrible liar, isn't he? Terrible liar. So Ahimelech's listening to this going, seriously? You're all by yourself? You told your men to meet you somewhere else? You don't even really know where that is? But then David gets to why he really stopped at Nob. He says, now then, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever you can find. Because he's starving. Now Ahimelech's going, wait a minute. You mean to tell me you're on a mission so secret that nobody knows what you're doing? And you didn't take anybody with you. You're going to meet up with some men. Oh, and you forgot to take any food. David's like, yeah, yeah. Doesn't that make sense to you? I just need something to eat. So Ahimelech's going, well, it doesn't make sense, but it's David. Like, I don't want to not help the king's son-in-law. He's a general of the army. He's so famous. He's David. Like, i I got to help David. So here's how Ahimelech answers. The priest answered David. I don't have any ordinary bread on hand. You know, just common bread that people would eat. However... There is some consecrated bread here, provided that the men have kept themselves from women. That needs a little explanation, doesn't it? It's like, what in the world does women have to do with bread? Well, here's what he's talking about. In the tabernacle, these priests, every single week, would put out 12 loaves of bread. It was called the bread of presence. Each loaf represented a different tribe of Israel. And the bread was symbolic. It was a reminder to the people of Israel that God is with you and he'll provide for you. It was a reminder of his presence and his provision. And the priests every week were allowed to eat that bread. But in order to eat the bread, because it had been used in the tabernacle and they considered it holy, in order to eat the bread, the priest had to be ceremonially clean. And I'm not going to bore you with all the details of what it took to be ceremonially clean, but one was you had to have gone a certain period of time without having been in your wife's company, if you will. So here's Ahimelech, and he's thinking, okay... All I've got is bread that's holy that only priests are supposed to eat. But this is David, and I don't have anything else, and I want to help him, so he's justifying in his own mind. He's like, okay, if I could somehow convince myself that David meets all the requirements to eat the bread, just like we meet the requirements, then I'll give it to him, and surely God will be okay. So that's why he asked this of David. And David is just telling a story. He's making stuff up as he goes. So he's like, sure, I can meet those requirements. Here's what he says. Indeed, Ahimelech, indeed women have been kept from us As usual whenever I set out Yeah, we never enjoy our wives before we go on long trips Ahimelech, the men's bodies are holy Even on missions that are not holy How much more so today? Now, this statement David makes Actually reveals part of his problem One of the problems David had Was there was no us It was just him If David would have been surrounded in this moment by the right voices, if he had been surrounded by the right us, he might not have made the decisions he made and he might not have created the consequences we're going to see in a moment he created. If he had just been surrounded by the right group of people, who could remind him, no, 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 David, you're panicking right now. You're being consumed by fear. You're acting as if you can't trust God anymore. You can trust God. Don't do that. No, 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 that's not what somebody would do who's confident God's with them. Don't go there. No, 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 don't make that decision. If he had just had some people to remind him of that, this story might turn out very differently. Now, here's what I know about you. Here's what I know about me. You cannot predict your next broken dream. You can't predict when you're going to experience another broken dream. But you can prepare for it. And one of the ways you prepare for it is you surround yourself with the right us now. The right voices now. The right people who are going to look at you in the middle of a broken dream when you're ready to orchestrate and manipulate and try to you know, control outcomes, when you're ready to rebel and resist God, when you're ready to just give up following and trusting Him in terms of doing the next right thing. You need some voices in your life that are going to look at you in the middle of your fear and say, nope, that's not what trusting God looks like you got to do the right thing. you got to do what you would do if you were confident God was with you. This is why Paul and your campus pastors talk to you about getting in a small group. It is not for their benefit. It is for yours. The reason they're wanting you to get in a summer group right now is because they know you can't predict when you're going to have another broken dream, but you're going to need the right people around you when it happens. And if you'll just be intentional about developing those kinds of relationships, it'll pay off in your growth when your world gets turned upside down. That's why if you're not in a group, you should sign up and jump in one this summer. It's not just necessarily because you need it right now, although you'll find you do. You'll find there's a ton of value. It's because you don't know when you're going to need those kinds of people in your life. David didn't have them. It's why he made the mistakes that he made. So he says, hey, just give me the bread. He's lying to a priest here, but it doesn't matter. Just give me the bread. Because, again, everything's being driven by fear. So the story continues and says, so the priest gave him the consecrated bread. Now, listen, this right here should have caused, caused David to pause and go, well, oh, wait a minute. This bread, it's a reminder of God's presence and his provision. Why am I acting the way I'm acting? Why am I running the way I'm running? Wait a minute. God's still with me. God will still provide for me. This should have been a reminder to him, but it wasn't. You know why? For the same reason that you and I forget. Because fear has a way of drowning our faith, doesn't it? Fear has a way of taking such total control of our lives that we lose trust in our Heavenly Father completely. We forget all of his faithfulness in the past. We forget these he's with us in the present. And we let fear drive our decisions. Now, right in the middle of the story... This next verse is a simple little fact that seems like it's just thrown in for no reason. But it's actually really important. The writer continues and says, Now one of Saul's servants was there that day in Nob, detained before the Lord. He was Doeg the Edomite, Saul's chief shepherd. You just hang on to that. We're going to come back to that at the end. But David's not done getting the help that he needs. He goes on. David asked Ahimelech, Well, don't you have a spear or a sword here? I haven't brought my sword or any other weapon because the king's mission was urgent. Now, you know at this point Ahimelech's like, wait a minute. Are you kidding me? You are the general of the army. You don't go anywhere without a weapon. But again, it's David, you know, so he's thinking, well, maybe something happened. Now, what happens next, I I can't overemphasize this, what happens next is so dramatic. It is so dramatic. What happens next should have changed the direction of David right on the spot. Here's how Ahimelech responds. The sword of Goliath the Philistine, whom you killed, David, in the valley of Elah, it's here. It's wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you want it, take it. There's no sword here but that one. This should have caused David just to stop in his tracks and go, are you kidding me? What am I doing? Wait a minute, wait a minute. The same God who helped me kill Goliath, the same God who protected me there, well, that same God's going to protect me now. The same God who took me from the pasture to the palace in such a short amount of time, like how does that even happen? Well, that same God's going to keep being with me and watching over me in the middle of this. He's not lost control of this situation. If he was in control when I was in the valley with Goliath, He's in control now. That sword should have been all it took to remind him of God's power, his strength, and his faithfulness. But again, David's running in fear. And he doesn't consider that at all. He just looks back at Ahimelech and he says this, There's none like it. Give it to me. And then that day David fled from Saul and went to Ashish, king of Gath. Now next week, we're going to pick the story up right here. Because if you think David's being unwise up to this point, wait till you see what he does next. But there are two big steps that you and I have to take in the middle of our broken dreams if we're going to experience a breakthrough and we're going to learn both of them from David next week. But before we get there, we really can't be too hard on David, can we? Let's be honest. Come on. Haven't we all done this? Haven't we all found ourselves in a situation where things weren't turning out the way we wanted and we tried to control the outcomes? We ran, we resisted, we rebelled. We let fear drive all of our decisions. Haven't we all done that? I'll tell you why you do it and I'll tell you why I do it. Because we forget what David forgot. You know what you need to remember in in the middle of a broken dream? You need to remember this that the same God who brought you to it will bring you through it. The same God who brought David to this point in his life, he would have brought David through it if David would have just trusted. And the same is true for you. If we can be personal for just a minute, don't you think that the same God who brought you to the point that you're at right now Can bring you through not having biological children? Don't you think that the same God Who's provided for you up to this point Can bring you through the financial crisis And the broken dreams financially that you have? Don't you think that the same God Who's brought you to this point Can bring you through this season of loneliness? Don't you think that the same God Who's brought you to this point Can can bring you to the place of a better marriage? Don't you think the same God can figure out those career issues you're facing? Come on, we we know this intellectually, but emotionally it just doesn't feel that way, does it? But this is true. This is what you have to remember. If you forget it, you're going to make some really, really unwise decisions you got to remember the same God who brought you to it will bring you through it. The same God who is faithful to you in the past is with you in the present, and he will be faithful to you in the future. But you have to trust him. So as we wrap up today, here's what I want to do. I want to challenge you to pray a prayer for the next seven days. It's a very simple prayer to understand. It's honestly very, very difficult to pray. And if you're in the middle of a broken dream, it's going to be really hard. Some of you are thinking, well, Matt, I'm not even a Christian or I'm not even sure what I believe. I'm not praying a prayer. I don't even know if there's a God. Well, that's fine. I tell my friends who don't believe in God all the time. Why wouldn't you just pray 10 seconds a day for seven days? You're praying to nobody according to you. That can't hurt anything, you know? So I want everybody to play along on this one. Here's the prayer I would invite you to pray. God, I can't see you, but I still trust you. This is a prayer of faith, and here's why. You need to pray this prayer when you believe it, but you really need to pray this prayer when you don't. You need to pray this prayer in those moments where you feel like you see where God's at work and how He's doing something, but you really need to pray this prayer in those moments where there is no evidence of God's presence or activity in your life. And you're beginning to wonder if you really can trust Him. You say, Matt, but I don't believe it. I don't feel it. I don't want to pray something that I don't believe. That's okay. You should pray it anyway. Because this will help you remember that the same God who brought you to it, he'll bring you through it. You know what real faith looks like? Real faith is not the kind of faith you display when all your dreams come true and God does what you thought he was going to do. That's not actually great faith. Great faith is the kind of faith that keeps on trusting God when all your dreams die. That's when you know you have great faith. Great faith is the kind of faith that stands in the middle of broken dreams and says, that's okay, it's okay. I'm still heartbroken. And this still hurts. But I'm going to keep following my Heavenly Father because He's worth following whether He ever gives me this dream or not. That is great faith. So, pray this prayer with me. For the next seven days. Whatever situation or circumstance you have in your life that's not going well. God, I I can't see you. I'm not sure what you're doing around me right now, but I still trust you. And remember, remember what David forgot in the middle of his broken dreams. Remember that the same God who brought you to this point, he'll bring you through this point. And he really is worth following. So just do the next right thing and trust him and act as if you were confident that he's with you. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you so much for being faithful to us even when we lose faith. And to be honest, this this is one of those issues, one of those topics that's uh, really easy to talk about but it's really hard to live out. So for the people who are struggling, for the people who they have sat in these seats and they're thinking about something so personal to them, a dream that's dying, a dream that has died, a family situation where the family's just not turning out the way they envisioned and the grandparents aren't investing in their kids the way they thought they would and the kids aren't staying around the way they thought they would and the marriage isn't what they thought. For the people who are dealing with so much turmoil with their career, so much turmoil with... Figuring out what their next step is. For the people who are enduring the pain of not being able to have children, having lost children, whatever the case may be. God, would you give us enough courage? Would you give us enough strength to say, okay, I can't see you right now. I don't know where you're at work, God. And I, I'm, I'm not even sure you're here, but I'm going to believe you are. I'm going to trust you. And I'm going to do... Next, what anybody would do who was confident God was with them, I'm just not going to let fear drive my decisions. I'm going to trust you. Give them the courage to do that. And thank you, thank you for being so faithful, for being so strong, that we can trust you. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.